Greetings, future fossils. Michael Garfield here with another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Let's look at everything we've inherited from the sum of human culture and beyond our inherited bodies and our physics. And let's look at what we stand to offer those who come after us. Everything that we have done to transmute the conditions of our origin into something subtler and more refined we can hand on to the generations to come. I'm sitting here with a fluorite crystal in one hand and a labradorite in the other, presents from and to one of my dear friends whom I only see online. It's a, a unique bug or feature of this age that so many of our relationships exist intermediated through the liquid crystal displays of our screens. And yet that is precisely the magical window through which I want to lead you in today's conversation with my friend, the ungoogleable Michelangelo, an absolutely extraordinary artist, poet, storyteller, bard, a real wizard of this meta-industrial techno-shamanic age, if there ever were one. His alter ego side project, Void Denizen, highly puntagious Quicksilver personage, explores these themes of what it means to be a person within the multidimensional and manifold identity of a newly reconstituted ecological self. But before we get into that, I want to give thanks to Matthew Engelbrecht and Jason Bitters for joining the Future Fossils Patreon campaign this week and helping me ensure this show's sustainability. I'm working on some science fiction I'll be sharing through that Patreon page right now. A story about what happens to us as a species in an age when artificial intelligence can forge all of our recordings and we no longer have as admissible evidence, audio or video, in order to anchor ourselves in consensus. This is like one of the most important issues in the news right now, and I'm delighted to be sharing this in a serial format, currently exclusive to my Patreon subscribers, although anybody can go to Patreon and find the first two minutes in audio format, as well as all of the previous episodes of this podcast, as well as a few hours of my cyber acoustic guitar, which performs in music what these conversations are intended to perform in the realm of concepts and ideas. So if you dig this podcast, I hope you'll go check out patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and join the 60-some subscribers I have on there right now, helping subsidize my rent so that I can spend more time researching, curating, condensing, and reporting back from the frothy edges of this emergent thing we're all living through. There are, of course, plenty of ways to get involved. If you're a Facebook friend, you may wonder where all of my posting went lately. And the answer is it went into the Future Fossils group because most of the things I find worth reading and sharing and discussing are now getting shunted directly into that. And at any rate, I am deeply grateful to everyone in the living audience of this show for helping me convey these fantastic discussions down through the ages. At any rate, 
This conversation with Michelangelo was a total treat for me, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Let me test the levels on my recorder. Yes, sir. You say words, then I'll say words. Well, who will say words first? I think we both just... We'll just speak at the same time and see who pierces through the veil first. (laughs) All right. Dude, it's so great to have you on the show. I have been courting you to be on Future Fossils for some time, so I'm glad that we finally roped it in. I am very happy to be here, finally. I've been listening to the show a lot. It's been really good, man. Stuff. I'm always I'm always want to talk while you're talking to these other guests, but then I realize that you won't be able to hear me, and it's just me talking to myself in the car. <laughs> glad I can actually make a difference this time. Yeah, well, you know, then you, what'll happen is you'll listen to this one, and you'll be like, <laughs> "I'm trying to interrupt this guy, but he won't shut up." Yeah, exactly. You. That's, so that's the way it goes. <laughs> so let's see here. There's so many things that you know. We we had a, this super crazy rant. Uh, fest on Reality Sandwich when I interviewed you about your new videos for Void Denizen, which I will post in the show notes. Uh, Folks, I've probably already explained this in the intro that I have yet to record, but Michelangelo has this alter ego that's a Scottish rapper, and it's a brilliant performance, and it's got this super occult, necromantic comedy thing going on. So, yeah, let's start with that. Basically, like, I don't want to interview you because I already interviewed you, but you're just such a multidimensional dude, and I feel like one of the things that that we could get into a little bit more now that we have this long-form conversation is... This relationship that you're exploring in your work right now with necromancing the Philosopher's Stone and Petrified and and that material about the mineral realm, because I, I keep thinking about what use this show will be to people listening 100 years from now. And I think that one of the things that's, if I'm going to place my money on a paradigm shift, it's going to be on a paradigm shift toward us embracing the music of the spheres and like the intelligence of the vegetable and mineral realms that we have not recognized as intelligence in the modern world. So what what comes up for you when you're imagining us dallying with translinguistic psychofluids in, <laughs> in, in the next 10, 20, 50,000 million? Well, to riff off of that... Um... The first things that come up for me is the when you're talking about fossilizing these uh, these different concepts is like what will hold up through time, you know. And I think I always try to go for sort of like a, a universalist, uh, transtemporal kind of product, you know, something that's not uh, so reflective on like topical things necessarily. Even though there is, you know, like certain like technological implications in these videos. There's like the, the computer screen and the Apple spinning, but I try to bring it back to the sort of like universal mythic realm. And uh, when you're saying uh, 
about about plants and minerals i always feel like humans like to learn from other humans but i don't think we'll learn what it is to be human from humans i think it's much more valuable to learn what it is to be human from animals and plants because i think you know our bodies are basically animals and uh, our minds are basically uh, vegetables i think not in the sense <laughs> i mean they're firmly planted in the animal body but uh, what I mean by that is that I think we learned a lot from the uh, from from the plant mind that must have played some kind of evolutionary role, like either dietarily or just psychically, in the way it teaches us how to hold light and open up to the light. I don't know if that does that make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's the Rudolf Steiner thing about as you're cultivating your your subtle sense organs, you know, you're you're establishing a relationship with the higher realms this is in how to know higher realms which mm. i'm reading right now and he talks about just sitting with in a kind of a diffuse passive awareness way sitting with these different things sitting with crystals sitting with plants sitting with animals and noticing how the crystal has its own sort of logical structured growth the animal has a will and an agency of some kind and the the vegetable is kind of just right in between those two things it has an agency and a and and yet also this sort of determined structural identity and so there's you know i i, I should be relying on someone else who's done more steiner reading than i have uh but there is this this thread that goes through that anthroposophical work and and through a lot of the esoteric traditions that there is that all of these threads coexist in the human being that you have to some extent you know the minerals of our bones and and all that stuff and that we're not really distinct in any sense except that we contain all of these different things and so you know what you're saying actually um the first thing that popped up for me was a couple of years ago i was listening to this interview with the author kevin kelly and he was talking about ai and he was saying that it, he's not actually all that interested in ai that would like reproduce a human mind he's like that's what's the point like we already do that we already make people <laughs> You know, what? why? Why make more people? And and he's like, well, it's way more interesting for us to make AIs that do things that people can't do. And so yeah. that we would, you know, that we would be more from our relationships with them, that, that we're not just reinventing a person, but that we're creating an intelligence that relates to the world in a way that's fundamentally different from our intelligence. And so that it would actually teach us something we don't already know. That's very interesting. So almost like a uh, uh, an incarnate psychedelic or something like that. Mm. This, this AI would uh, perhaps have the mind of uh, have a mineral mind or something. Like you're saying, plants and 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 rocks and these kinds of things. They they have a different way of relating to the world. Maybe it's a slower pace, like a much more slower pace. So maybe there is a way to transpose that into these AIs so that they can have kind of like rock solid minds that are able to translate to us. That would be an interesting concept. Or yeah, like in, in Slaughterhouse Five, how the Trophimadorians they see all of time at once and so they see a human being as like a centipede. 
of, yeah, of yeah. moments, you know? And so it's like, yeah, what, what do we look like? I actually, I think about that a lot. I don't That's know. It's a very if, God from the machine kind of, uh, or God in the machine kind of mindset, isn't it? Well, you, you and I have talked a, a little bit, a very little bit about our respective ayahuasca experiences. And like one of those experiences, I think, you know, one of the things that came out for me from that is, you know, from my very limited engagement with that particular medicine is that there is like, almost like where the ambulatory components of a tree, like, Ooh, like, if, yeah, yeah. like the tree doesn't have a head. So it's not and it's not mobile in the same way that a person is. So it's not clear that a tree's intelligence would really think of people as separate in the way that we do, because we have to navigate space in a different way. It's like they're not in an evolutionary context that's reinforcing a self-other boundary, right? So, like, they, they, what? How does a tree see a person? Well, like a tree would see maybe, maybe a tree would see a person as a piece of itself that is just flying around really fast and, you know, gathering things. And it's not like I'm over here and the tree's over there. Like that's a human experience. Mm -hmm. Well, let's think of it like this, right? How um, I think it was Jung that said something like insects are uh, are like mobile flowers or something like bees are like mobile flowers because, you know, they have their little little love interplay and that perpetuates uh, the ecology. And perhaps humans are that what a bee is to a flower and humans are to a tree. And I'm thinking that in the sense of, you know, we we cut them down and then we pulp them. So we have paper. And uh, through that, we can tell our stories, right? We can like draw on that. We can write on that. But I always like to think of uh, it being a misconception that we write on paper or we, we draw on paper. I feel like we draw from paper because paper is made of trees and trees have their own stories to tell over longer periods of time. So um, I think it's actually uh, Saul Williams has a beautiful quote. It's like uh, something like uh, books are carefully folded forests. Which I think that's kind of an, an interesting nugget of uh, of thought in that regard. You know, we we can perpetuate uh, a tree human symbiosis. Not to mention the whole oxygen thing. Of course. <laughs> well, you know, again, that's that's the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately about this notion that you know we we think we in the modern life we tend to differentiate between the world of the artificial and the world of the natural. But the, what we call natural is actually this world that was shaped over billions of years by the interaction between different organisms, like James Lovelock's Gaia theory and how the atmosphere isn't itself an artifact. Like Earth didn't have an atmosphere originally. That atmosphere was farted out by bacteria. And so it's a product of life and then it creates a context and then life does other things within that context. And so right now, human beings aren't really creating something that's qualitatively different from nature. We're just creating a new layer of nature. When you think about like, you know, like falcons roosting in the belfry of a church, it's like that falcon doesn't give a shit. Like, it's not like, oh, that's, you know, that's a tree over there. And I'm just having to settle. You know, like my mom right. was talking about pigeons and like, oh, pigeons are are dumb. Like, they, why would they live in, or maybe that was my aunt. Anyway, there's like, why would they live in the city? You know, why would they live in such a heinous place? I'm like, because there's food? Like, they don't care. 
it's Kill just it. yeah it's it's a it's just a concrete jungle to them it's you know they're they go where the the opportunity is so, it's funny to think that that this um, this artificial reality or the reality of artifice that we create uh, that you know it might it's not separate from nature it actually uses components of nature in order to make these different technologies is that there's you know it's a creative act but it's also like an evolutionary thing because we have these upgrades that we have to get all the time right and if you don't upgrade then you basically get booted out of existence and I think that's like that on the organic realms and it's like that in the the creations we create too like if I don't upgrade the uh, software on my iPhone, it's going to eventually just perish. <laughs> well, there's that notion. I haven't really heard anybody talk about this because it's kind of ignored in this. You know, everybody talks about the end of the age of dinosaurs, but the end of the, the, the age of dinosaurs actually was started with an even bigger extinction. And then there is an, an, an extinction about half that size in the middle of it that was precipitated mm. by flowers and it was like this notion of moving from pollen just being carried by the breeze to pollen being carried by pollinators. And so as soon as like they work out that new intimacy between the flower and the beetle or whatever, then, you know, as soon as you have suddenly a, like a mobile component to plant reproduction, you know, an animal piece of it then mm -hmm. the ecosystem just exploded. Like it went super fast. It was, you know, something equivalent to what we're experiencing now with the internet. And all these dinosaurs and all these other creatures that couldn't hack it, literally, like, like they couldn't <laughs> hack into the mutual attention system engineering of, of plants and pollinators, they all went out. Like a bunch of dinosaurs just stopped existing at the end of the Jurassic period because they purpose in the uh, the larger picture or something like that yeah they, they couldn't they couldn't adapt to a world where the landscape is suddenly made out of flowers instead of ferns mm. and so like birds birds were like small and fast and they got it but like it kind of let's like you link that back into like mythology as like the titans getting replaced by the the olympic gods or, you know, uh, like Lucifer refusing to bow to human beings because he's like stuck in his his like worship of the Godhead. Like he, he mm. can't he can't twist. He like literally cannot turn and face the strange like David Bowie, you know. <laughs> and so like that that inability to pivot, like my friend David Titterington, who I just recorded an episode with, was talking about Standing Rock and how the whole story of Standing Rock is that it was based on this woman who refused to relocate, like refused to change her camp. And that there's this weird, tragic resonance between what's going on there now with the actual origin story for the, the Standing Rock Sioux, which was that it was, it was like this woman basically refused to move with her husband and the rest of their group and like became a rock like became like Lot's wife. Like she was like, I'm not leaving and like turned to stone. Petrified. Right yeah, she petrified. So that's yeah. actually, yeah, I'm kind of throwing you the proverbial bone here with that right. one. Speaking know. of the proverbial bone, I'm glad that those dinosaurs, which didn't have a purpose at the time and got booted out of existence, found their purpose when we uh, appropriated fossil fuels, you know, that we were able <laughs> to give them their place in the world. Yeah, yeah, we're doing a great job with that. Although I think, you know, most I think most oil is actually plant based. But I, I, yeah. I do, you know, mythologically speaking, I'm fine with, you know, 
that being a thing. So I don't think we got into this in the in the thing. What is it for you? Like the cover of your album is like you're standing on this megalithic structure that has your band name on it or whatever. What is your it deal? Like Stonehenge. Uh, yeah, Stonehenge. It says void. Exactly. Voidhenge. Uh, so what is what is your like point of entry for all of this stuff? Like, I mean, I know I'm interested in rocks because I grew up looking for fossils. What is the fascination for you? You were a, a paleontologist originally, and I've always considered myself a paleontologist. You know, <laughs> a, a paleontologist will excavate the soil and search for for fossils, and a, a paleontologist will excavate um, the present for fossilized perceptions. So I'm always looking for these kind of um, nuggets, just like linguistic impressions or, or etymological traces that lead us from the present into this kind of like timelessness or this subconscious of words or symbols. A lot of what I do, it's kind of free associative. I I kind of look at everything um, uh, as the world as a sort of uh, Rorschach worship workshop, as I like to call it. Because I feel like the natural world is kind of like a Rorschach generator. Like if you walk through the woods, it's just a mess, you know, like last (laughs) Last fall's leaves are still withered by the wayside, turning colors. And it's just like this random, organic, textured domain, which is, again, it's like in the videos, I talk a lot about the screen and striking through the screen, which you can look at that as like the literal LCD liquid crystal display crystal ball of your laptop and striking through that. Or you can think of it as the uh, cultural perceptual screen that mediates immediate experience. Um, and in a way, I think that's what nature is for me, too, is this sort of screen of randomness, like a dead channel. But that dead channel is not dead and it's not mute. It's just been muted. And if you can unmute that, there's like all this liveliness within that. Like if you look at a um, dead channel of static on a TV screen, for instance, you'll start seeing all these different swarming patterns uh, that I feel are like an entrance point to the other side, which, you know, tongue in cheek, the other side is like, you know, where the ancestors reside or, or the land of the dead. But, you know, on a more practical level, it's getting in touch with your own uh, what I call the illuminated unconscious. And uh, I don't just call it the unconscious because that gives it the sense that it's not conscious, but it has its own sense of illumination. Right. Mm. Uh, one thing you and Michael Phillip talk about uh, briefly I think he touched on to this, that it's such a loaded word, consciousness, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of times people will go into the conversations about consciousness, and I think it becomes a conscious mess because you never really <laughs> talk about what, how you would define that. But for me, when I talk about consciousness, I'd be talking about like the subjective uh, experience that we have, our subjective consciousness, which uh, Julian Jaynes in his book, uh, The Origins of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind – uh, describes as a metaphor generated model of the world. Mm. If you can in for a moment. So the idea that uh, it's kind of like the world and it's double, right? That idea that what exists in consciousness is not the actual thing. It's like uh, a replacement because we understand things in relation to other things. So the feeling of understanding is really just the feeling of familiarity. So, um, to get back to my original point, this was kind of like a little rampage, but it's kind of like this this free associative uh, 
trip that I went on, like through petrified, like some of the verses had come to me and then I had to figure out what it was really all about. So I kind of started playing with all the different ideas of, of rocks and different pulling in different rock mythologies. I knew like the, um, you know, Stonehenge came up, which the idea of Stonehenge is we still don't really know what this monolithic structure uh, what its function was, right? Like there's been speculations that it's an ancient burial ground or that it's some kind of star map. Um, and then I started thinking, well, it looks kind of like a big router, you know? But like <laughs> what was the internet in those days? And I thought of the Celtic knot, so that became the internaut. So the Celts have a thing called the internaut that tied all things together, like connect the dots. And Stonehenge was the router, but we all forgot how to dial up to the stars and the dead below because the modem was too old and the connect too slow. <laughs> It's just kind of like playing connect the dots with this sort of like random Rorschach pareidolia imprint that the world gives you of all this overwhelming information and trying to just like forge meaning from that and forge some sense of significance by creating constellations of purpose, I guess. Yeah. yeah well, you know, there's that's also probably one of the most important books I feel like I ever read was Metaphors We Live By, uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. And it came out in the 80s. And I feel like you know, I, re I found it after years of reading Ken Wilber. And he had this whole thing about nothing is merely objective or subjective, you know. And But I was like, yeah, but she got these like first person experiences and third person descriptions. But what is in that? Yeah, the internaut, like what's in the middle of his four quadrants? You know, what what is that thing that all of this stuff is emerging out of? Mm. And they were the ones who really showed for me in a way that I began to like actually comprehend how, you know, their whole thing was embodied cognition and like embodied metaphor and how, you know, we, we think of more being up because we stack things because we're in gravity. And like, if we weren't in a gravitational field, then more would be out like we would build from the middle out rather than from the bottom up. And so like, you know, and then we have, you know, all of these other correlations that are, that are actually anchored in our somatic experience and that it's basically a braid like all the way down. Like you can't really, you know, any, any attempt to like render something as purely subjective or objective is itself merely conceptual. And so you right. can't ever really get to the base of it because because where where does cognition actually begin? Like you don't have a moment in the in the evolutionary history of the organism that you can point to and be like that's where something starts to think, you know. And in fact, Francisco Varela and uh, more recently Neil Thies. Neil Thies is a uh, like a complexity researcher and an a, uh, a an oncologist. And he has a cool video on panpsychism on, on Vimeo. And his, his whole thing was like, basically like you can make the case, you know, as you trace this stuff down that you can see how a cell is thinking of there being an inside and an outside and how it's, it's making, it's navigating and it's making sense of things. And, but even that cell is like made out of simpler components that are, that are still making even more elemental basic differentiations. And mm. so like, it seems like even at the level of like, if you want to take it down to the quantum level, that there are discriminations occurring between you know, different like quantum states of a thing. And it's like determining what is a possibility versus what is an actuality. And so like on some level, like the quantum 
of matter is also the quantum of of mind. And so it's like mind or like Robert Anson Wilson says, interacting, processing, processing, interacting, like that it's the mm -hmm. same sort of working over and like open-ended processual interactive thing, like all the way down. And there's no point at which you really have like the origin of, of mind at any step of that. And that's again, where you get into that thing of like, well, then if you're going to go there, then you're going to go to like, well, rocks clearly, the crystalline world has some kind of prehension. It's like computing something. It's also, it's interesting because rocks are so dense and material, right? But there's also the, the idea of this philosopher's stone or this kind of like crystalline quality of something which uses that uh, material world as a springboard into like higher realms, right? But again, these are, these are like metaphors that we're enforcing. And I think that this like objective, subjective, inside, outside, it's a sort of like sleight of hand onto <laughs> a trick, right? And because we're looking at it with this dualistic tool that we have of this language, and then we're using these metaphors and we're confusing them for the actual thing. Like I've, uh, I always think of it as like metaphors for metaphors that are just drifting away from the actual thing. What, what, what is this actual thing? It's, I call it metaphors. Because it's mm. just intangible force that we then like cake all this batter on top of, <laughs> of of all these different ideas that then play off of each other until we're so dissociated that we forget that we're animals lost in space and then we think we're humans living in a city with all these ideas and uh, and some kind of like sense of of the concrete. And I have one one more metaphor on this idea. It's actually it's very inane and stupid, but it means a lot to me. I grew up in the Netherlands. You know, I'm from the Netherlands, and um, there was a TV show that I used to love. Uh, it's called The Film von Oma Willem, which means like Uncle Willem's film. And he was this revolutionary kind of dude because he would flip the visor of his head upwards of his hat. You know, and that was for the kids. That was just like amazing somebody would do something like that outrageous <laughs> this yeah, guy was that's kind of, uh that's revolutionary right there it was at the time in the netherlands for all these kids like we had never seen somebody defy uh, normalcy in such a way as to uh, turn their visor of their hat upwards but he was this sort of like if you imagine like mr rogers and dr seuss get together and uh vomit out most of their talent and they would just kind of like <laughs> haphazardly right well, at the end of at the end of the show, he would do this little ritual with the kids where he would like clench his fist and then he'd get the kids around and they would start stacking fists, you know, one fist upon the other. And they'd create this like rotating tower of fists and they would sing this little song that goes, Deze Faust op Deze Faust, Deze Faust op Deze Faust, and zo gaan wij naar boven. Which if I would like translate that uh it comes down to something. I'm going to make it a little more elegant than it was, but this fist upon this fist and this fist upon this fist, and thusly we ascend. But Ooh. what is this? What do we got here? We got a bunch of fists clenching nothing, creating this tower that's constantly seems like it's going somewhere, but it's actually just the bottom fist is going back to the top and the top fist is going back to the bottom. And it's just, it's this, this illusion that it's creating, right? So, ah. It's kind of how I look at uh, the relation between like consciousness and infinity or metaphors and metaphors. So the year, the first year that you came out to Burning Man as Void Denison and psychopathically stayed in character for the entire week, which really, really fucked with my head. Uh, but it was it was awesome. I gave a talk that year 
called View from the Horizon at Center Camp. And the it was the first time that I'd ever tried to like put this together, but it was this idea that that what we think of as extropian and like en- entropian or whatever that like that evolution and involution or like the, the like order out of chaos or order into chaos that they're actually the same thing so for example the the whole premise currently in physics is that we're in the the big poof right that we're like the the big it's bang little yeah. brothers well it's just like it's just still going you know and it's not as concentrated and and violent seeming anymore but you know eventually it will just sort of ripple out into cosmic heat death and that that you can't put the smoke back in the cigarette and that every you know that all of life is sort of just you know order being stolen from the jaws of death but then there's this whole other view you know historically which is that you know when we look at what life is doing that it's it's crawling up out of the thing it's it's growing into more and more complex forms and it's transcending itself and these two things seem diametrically opposed but there's like a new synthesis that seems to be finally taking root in the sciences that actually that life is just a more efficient way of distributing energy like dissipating energy and information that it's like it's just a it's a more effective inefficiency you know that it's like effective inefficiency yeah that it's like that really the goal here is to be ridiculous like totally ridiculous and that like the pierre Teilhard de chardin's omega point like this this ultimate unity this ultimate perfect all-embracing cosmic order is like just totally inane that like the goal of everything is nonsense. Right. You know, and, and so this was really well articulated in Richard Doyle's uh, book, Darwin's Pharmacy, which I never stopped talking about. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But like this, this, <laughs> this whole thing about sexual selection, uh, that we invent sex as, you know, earth life or whatever. We invent sex as a way of speeding up our, and, and also by extension, also, uh, like pollination and all sorts of symbiosis that we invent these new modes of interaction and language, combining words into sentences and then combining ideas into theses or whatever, that these are all ways of speeding up this process of everything just going to complete hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and so the sooner we can get all the puzzle pieces together, the sooner we can scoop it back into the box. Basically. Or, well, or, or rather that it's like this idea of order and this idea of chaos are just ideas. And that, mm. that what we have instead is a sort of like quickening of both sides of it. So the things are getting better and worse at the same time. Things are getting more and more orderly and more and more turbulent and chaotic at the same time. I, I kind of had this, this sneaking suspicion that by the end of this century, we're going to have a completely different orientation to the idea of, of order and chaos and that we're going we're gonna to see randomness as an undetected pattern and that we're going to see you know paradox as like lines converging on the horizon of some transcendent understanding that like David Wade talks about this as like the crystal and the dragon that we have all these different ideas of you know that all human cultures tend to like absolutize one or the other you know the Taoists tend to absolutize the dragon 
you know, this like sort of fractal paisley, you know, chaotic flowing thing. And then like Islam tends to absolutize the crystalline ordered perfection of everything. But that that's basically like where those traditions kind of like run out of question marks and have to like <laughs> we find it out. the like, dragon yeah we got to draw the line somewhere because we're human beings and we can't sit around yeah. wondering about this shit all day that's i think that's kind of what um my website is void and imagination which kind of like plays in on that idea right that everything is void it's like invalid it's empty but from that comes this imagination which like brings this order into it or this feeling of sense of significance and uh again bringing back to that that idea of pareidolia which is the um it's like the faces you see in the clouds you know or jesus's face on your toast that sort of thing the uh, next that word is next to a god right pareidolia like like the the eidolon yeah the image it's next to not quite the thing yeah exactly so this this idea of um, these random uh, informational inputs, just random data that's perceived as something meaningful, which is, again, like this chaos and order and the sense of what you were saying earlier about like living in the, the quantum realm, which I don't think anybody can really raise their kids there. You know what I mean? Or it's like it's not it's a very uncertain place to live if you're in this constant like everything could be everything else, because that's why we're constantly making choices, reality choices. We're constantly projection mapping some kind of significance onto this Rorschach, onto this like pareidolia uh, generator of the world. So we're I think that's like the ultimate thing is like your intention that you project onto the world is constantly going to concretize to the point of, again, like falling apart. Like you're going to put the jigsaw pieces together and then scoop them back in the box and then put them back together and scoop them back in the box. But it's that rapid upcycle of worldview, I think, that's important to keep in mind, especially in these you know, rapidly changing times where there's so much information. You're constantly having to reconfigure uh, worldviews. I wonder about that with, you know, like in my case, I'm 33 and I still have no kids, you know, and it's like, it's something I want, but at the same time, like when I look at what I do for a living, which is exactly what you're talking about, it's just like connecting things as fast as like make, I mean, you know, like my sort of a uh, gunslinger statement is tell me a little bit about yourself and then give me a topic and I'll try and make this topic relevant to you. And it's just about like establishing relevance, which as I, I was talking about this with my aunt a couple of weeks ago, who is very practical, task oriented, you know, business minded, raised two very successful kids that already have kids. And we were talking about, you know, a couple of like sort of paranormal experiences that I've had. And it just didn't the stuff that like totally freaks me out didn't even phase or even interest her. And it occurred to me that this is the reason her kids have kids. And this is the reason that I'm like hosting a podcast that like, it is. And so like, well, maybe the podcast will hatch one day, right? Oh yeah. Ooh. Pod, yeah. Well, I mean, but that's the thing is like, you're getting into the terrain of sort of what comes after like post vital reproduction, right? Like what, what happens when, you know, we're, we're sort of so preoccupied with genetic engineering that, that we sort of, there's there's all this this mythical structure about the future of the human species sort of tampering with our reproductive systems and like rendering ourselves sterile, but that we just that's reproduce stuff right there. Man. Say what? I've been watching The Handmaid's Tale, which that's kind of the premise of the whole show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or um, or it, there's there's uh 
you know, in exopolitical folklore, this notion that the gray aliens are actually human beings that have traveled back through time and that the reason they're abducting people is because they're trying to get DNA samples and trying to understand what they lost along the way to being these sort of like perfected organisms that actually have like misplaced their humanity. And so it's like they, they've sort of nailed, they've, they've sort of done it. You know, they've, they've become godlike in some respects, but the gods themselves, wh- although immortal, are incapable of being like limited and animalistic in the way that we are. And they, they envy us. Like in the Tibetan tradition, it's like the gods are jealous of like normal human bullshit for some reason that seems opaque to us, but makes sense when you're like, well, gosh, you know, you, you don't ever get to change. You don't ever get to make mistakes sort of you're stuck making the same mistake of one of my favorite films too by vim wenders um in in the u.s it's brought out as wings of desire did you ever see that oh god yeah that with the angels berlin yeah the the angel it was later remade into uh city of angels and they traded nick cave nick cave for nick cage which was you know a terrible trade of course but the original had uh uh, the singer um, Nick Cave and Peter Falk, but the basic premise of it is basically these angels that hang around Berlin and they look over people's lives and they, you know, they have this intellectual understanding of it all and they love to hang out by the libraries because they can hear people reading and they can constantly hear people thinking, but they themselves don't know what it is to feel or what it is to bleed. And they can't influence any of it is the sad thing. So they can like put their hand on someone's shoulder who's feeling depressed, but that's not going to keep them from jumping off a building sort of thing. So they're like in this like high ascended realm, but they can't do anything about it, which sounds almost it sounds like a romantic version of what you said about those greys. And there yeah. I have another theory about the greys personally, which is it. that uh, when I look at them, just the way they look, you know, I always think that if if. Aliens are going to come visit us if, like, a UFO or something. It just wouldn't just be some, like, metal craft coming from some other place and, and hovering over the Earth. I think it would more be, like, an idea that would be implanted, uh, then would be created into some kind of item, right? Some kind of technological item that then... He holds up his iPhone there, yeah. My little monolith. Uh, everybody's going to get basically sucked into, and it's going to give them a limited array of options by which to organize their mental uh, faculties. So now everybody is basically getting abducted into this tiny little uh, IFO and, <laughs> uh, that they're walking around with. Um, and then what happens is, you know, the glowing of the screen makes your eyes much bigger and uh, your brain gets bigger. And so your head starts changing and your hair starts falling out. And then these tiny little sensors, you know, you're going to need to grow smaller fingers. So now by the end of this whole thing, you get these like lifeless gray people with huge heads, no hair, big old glowing eyes and uh, very long, skinny um, fingers that to me resembles the grays a lot. Yeah, yeah, actually... That doesn't seem to be in any kind of contest with the other idea. Like, like I had this thought about this stuff. And then, like, I heard Daniel Vitalis on Christopher Ryan's Tangentially Speaking podcast say, I don't remember the context, but he said, yeah, gray aliens are the human chihuahua. And it's like this this notion that we, like, finally domesticate ourselves to the point of chihuahuahood, you know? And like that, that totally seems like that's happening. And... In the in the sort of like Jungian sense that the UFO is an archetype of the perfected human being, right. that the like deviations 
from that perfection or like cautionary tale, uh, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go we, cause like so many of these, of these, uh, folklorish stories, I, I mean, I, I call them that, I mean, for all I know, they're as literal as anything can be literal, but I, instead of metaphoric or literal, I like to just say that everything is meta literal. So it's, a, like- it's just like a gradient of meta literality. So I wonder about that. You know, so many of these stories specifically invoke a moment in their history or our future where there's this great catastrophe and an evolutionary bottleneck and everybody goes underground and hides in bunkers. Like all the rich people go hide under the Denver airport, you know, and they're sort of warning us not to like tamper with CERN or nuclear weapons or whatever it is. Because what happens is that we end up becoming so prematurely reliant on our technologies that this occurs, that we, we like become these like shriveled, weird, you know, uh, you know, sort of human chihuahua creatures. But in a way, that's sort of just a projection of the thing that makes us uncomfortable about where we are already, you know, that we're already there, that like our jaws are already smaller than they were, you know, 20,000 years ago. Our brains are already smaller than they were. And like, we're basically sexually mature baby chimpanzees. It's kind of gross when you think about it like that. And you're like, watch a girl shave her legs and you're like, oh yeah, that's turning me on. But it's really just because she's, you're like, we're all pedophiles, all of us. You know, it's like, it's (laughs) awkward to think that this fascination with youth is actually sort of an intuition or intimation of where we're headed and that these people that we we consider like social outcasts and and rightly so because consent is important but that they're they're outcast because in a way they're like revealing something about our own evolutionary origins and destiny that is like super awkward <laughs> you know, like every time I shave, I'm like, why am I, why am I making myself look like a child? You know, why is no hair on your cheeks or on your forehead, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was certainly very strange stylized animals we are. Yeah. So I I don't know. I mean, I guess you know to wrap that back into the conversation we were having a moment ago about like seeing the eternalist crystal of of all moments together. I remember Jonathan Zapp saying in in his book uh, about the singularity archetype, he was talking about this notion of aliens being future humans and saying like, what if the whole thing is one, like the soul is the actual like primary unit and that at the end of time, you have sort of the head of the creature and at the beginning of time, you have like the tail of the creature and that yeah, Alan Watts called it like the the hat the head tailed cat continuum or something you know <laughs> chink in the in the gate you see the head of the cat and then later the body and then later the tail but it doesn't mean that one has caused the other but it's actually this continuum as I say that as the cat walks by the yeah the yeah you you you've got a, a head tailed cat continuum occurring on your your Skype window right now but it's that thing it's that we are actually sort of the you know maybe like the chest. You know, they're like, we, we really think, we really want human, our human identity is about love, 
you know, about our ability to to think, to transcend ourselves through that sort of angelic Empyrean dimension, but it's to anchor it in our like tribal affection and our romantic relationships. And and so if you're like to put it out through time, like we're in the, the heart chakra, we're in the middle of the beast right now these uh, projected futures where we've sort of like lost that piece of ourselves, but have perfected the mental makes sense. If we're putting ourselves on a continuum where the past is just like the sex organs or whatever. Right. And it's, again, it's that, that um, kind of dualistic paradox, right. Of like the future pushing in one direction or meeting us from the other side and somehow like meeting in the middle is like two streamed continuum. That it's kind of like what we touched on in the reality sandwich interview too about the daemon and yeah. the sense of like a larger body, um, a head in time, or you know, uh, a larger head, a body in time, that sort of thing. Um, Talk to me about your daemon, sir. You got a personal yeah. relationship with this. So the way, the best way, like rather than personifying it as like you know, my daemon Klaus over here who whispers in my ear while I ride or paint. It's more like the sense of. Um, I, I had this experience some years ago, like probably like 15 years ago, um, which was back in Amsterdam, which was kind of like my breakthrough LSD experience. And I, I found myself talking about this uh, with Eric Davis in his podcast a couple of years ago, too. So I guess this is becoming my go to tale. It's kind of like what Alex Gray would call uh, 37 years ago when I met my <laughs> wife. Allison. So this is my uh, my story of that. Um, my partner and I were sitting opposite each other as this, uh, this LSD was starting to come on. We were looking in each other's eyes and, and then everything kind of went dark except the eyes and these like ferns started creeping in. These paisley floods started kind of swallowing up all forms except the eyes. And then like in a flash, all of a sudden I was looking at her and she had these like dangling earlobes and she had this face of a Buddha. And I was like, you know, eyes wide open, just like, and then I blinked and in the next moment she had a blue face and she was like, she'd become Krishna. And now Krishna was staring right at me. And then again, I was just like beyond belief was just like, wow. And this was like, you know, some people who've never had hallucinations. It's not something outside of yourself. You know, it doesn't, it, it's not something that you distinguish necessarily from the consensual reality. Like this was like clear as day Krishna sitting opposite me. And then with another blink of an eye, my girlfriend had a huge beard and she had become Jesus. And that was like too much for me. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, Jesus, you know, like I like broke away and like went inward for like, what the hell was that? And then it showed me how I had like composited this from all these experiences, from the seeking, like reading the Tao Te Ching and the Bhagavad Gita. And I was just kind of like spiritually looking for the truth or whatever. Right. So I'd been given all these stories. And once that was stripped away and I kind of came out of this like internal serpentine flesh pool of associations, the room was now alive with this energy, with this like tangible strands of colorful energy. And I remember looking at that and taking it in and saying, oh, yeah, this creative energy that's been around from the unborn beginning until the undying end. Yeah, I would call that God. And then I opened up to it and it entered into me and I started to I just felt this rush of inspiration like never before, like just purely confident uh, creativity is pouring mm. through so I a paintbrush, grabbed some colors, started throwing them down on a canvas and just started moving them around. And, and I would get these doubts, you know, like, but what am I painting? And then this wash of energy would just like wash away all doubt with this sense of trust. This is like linguistic aura of trust. So I kept painting 
and by the end of it, the painting like represented what I had just gone through. It like represented this to me, at least in my interpretation, this sort of like pure Krishna-like self that was holding this nauseated ego at bay while staring like, <laughs> into this yin yang of unified duality and. And I got this sense that this painting had always existed, you know, that um, it's funny that, that your podcast is called Future Fossils because I came up with this concept through that of the fossilized future, that the future is like uh, encased in crystal. It's just like frozen. Right. And it needs to be thawed out, thawed out. Oh. So stream backwards in time and then the visionary can drink from those waters of this backwards flowing river of time and profess that essence into the present so the sense that this painting or anything we create is already in existence and if we're open to it and if we get out of our own way then we can tap into that and we can create uh the future into the present, you know into the present so mm. um when we talk about the daemon i think it's really it's 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 the notion of of getting out of your way so that the full centipede of your being rather than just one of its vertebrae can act out. And I feel like there's also like a duality or a paradox in that of, of being a visionary, somebody who can sense the future or sense the big picture, but at the same time being completely blind, you know? Like yeah. the etymology of the word psychedelic is mind manifesting. And I feel that that's what creativity is for me. Like I need to be creative in order to see what's on my mind or in order to see what's there. Like I paint or I write or I make music or tell these stories intuitively so that then I can look back at them and try to find the story within it so that I can mm. find a mirror that I create rather than looking in a mirror. It's crafting a mirror that you look into that then tells you something divines yourself. It's not the divine design. It's the divined design, right? Ooh, so that brings up two things for me. One is that, you know, you're talking about the blindness to this this full creature and it just is the case with paleontology that you very rarely find the head of the, the animal because mm. the head is not only i mean at least in vertebrate paleontology because the head is usually the one that's made out of like all the tiny fragile bones that are like locked together in an intricate way it's not like the femur but it's also full of the brain, which is like super nutritious and delicious and usually gets, uh, you know, scavenged right away. It's a priority organ for predators. So it's always really special when you find an animal that has its head preserved in the full brain case. And then very recently, which, you know, I'm not going to go so far as to as to just outright suggest, but I will dare to imply that our changing relationship to the future and being able to imagine the future seems to be mirrored in some way by the recent discovery of an unthinkable fossil, a fossil that nobody believed could even exist, which was they found, uh, they very recently found not just the cast, but like the actual structure of a dinosaur brain had been fossilized all the way through. And so they can actually see in the scan, like they can see in a in like a, a CAT scan of this thing, all of the three-dimensional architecture of the, the brain as it was, like the actual oh, yeah. tissue and flesh of it. And then the other thing that comes up for me... And it's been petrified? The brain has been petrified? It's been petrified, yes. And, yeah. and then the other thing that comes up for me is in a sort of personal uh, resonance with your story was that I had this experience almost it was like 10 years and two weeks ago it was memorial day weekend 2007 and it was when i met the sort of 
demonic entity. It was the first time I'd ever actually met something that I would consider to be like a, a discarnate or I don't know what you call that. I learned Ishtadeva, you know, these like minor deities or like a domestic deity, but it was the deity that emerged from the intersection of my own personal uh, daemon and the daemon of my partner. And, uh, you know, we were tripping together. And when we switched t-shirts, somehow there was like an energetic transfer because I was feeling, I was like, you know, let's experiment with that. Like shifting perspectives, shifting positions, kind of a gestalt therapy thing. And I was feeling kind of, of say what? Like walking in each other's shoes. Yeah. 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 So it it was really, it was a really powerful um, sort of performative exercise in that regard. So powerful that I felt like a circuit close and out of that closure emerged this being that sort of was the intersection or like the the child like the interference pattern of those two daemons and I've since had a very ambivalent relationship with this creature because I feel like uh this is you know when you're when you're accidentally summoning a demonic egregore and like invoking these these entities that you don't know how to relate to and then they exert they have a sort of life and agency of their own and you know since then i felt it's actually been rather complicating to that relationship you know because there's now this like third thing there that's very loud and has a will of its own and and does not want to be like banished back into the abyss from whence it came but when i was relating to this thing for the first time that night and like trying to make sense of it it was this combination of sort of like an angelic and sort of pelagic squid like thing and so we called it the angel squid and i I decided after we came down i was like i'm gonna look this thing up online and see if there's anything that can be you know what what the hell is an angel squid does it even exist and there is actually you know there's a kind of animal but there was also angelsquid.com, which was just this vector graphic of a little squid with wings and a halo and like a little chibi tune going on. And then right as I found Angel, which doesn't exist anymore. But at the time when I like looked at this up, <laughs> right when I found it, iTunes Shuffle came on to Bjork's song Modern Things. In which- I was going to bring that up too, actually, because that exactly gets into what i was just yes, saying. yes exactly so like bjork's song modern, says, all the modern things have always been there and that they're just waiting in a mountain for the right time that it's like it's all there and we're just digging Listen, into the future voices of cars and dinosaurs right or something yeah yeah i don't remember the exact words yeah. but it was a truly uh uncanny and sort of in its own way like terrible mysterious synchronicity that that is like just in this moment that it was like sort of enunciating itself it was like yes yes i am as real as you are and in fact more real in some respects like no it's true Uh, this is really cool but what the hell so you know i do think in a way it's sort of like we got to be careful not to like render this into just like perfectly deterministic terms you know it's like well what way are we chipping into this mountain you know because the direction that we move into is not necessarily the only direction. Like the futures that we excavate are not necessarily the only available futures. Uh, well, that's true. But I think that once we excavate in a certain direction, then that's the one that's been activated, right? Yeah. Like, uh, back to Vonnegut, um, I think it's in like Sirens of Titan or something. He kind of paints that image of um, 
of eternity, which is like this sort of container of all things that ever have happened, are happening, will happen, that are, you know, like this conversation will always exist on, on these coordinates of space and time. You know, like this is because we've crafted it out in this way. Like we can't undo it, but we can always revisit it, which is, I, I guess. Know. The, the, I mean, have you thought. have you had this experience? Because I feel like we can't actually change the past. This is just I a hunch. We can we can change our conclusions of it, which I guess in a way is like changing. We can draw new conclusions from our past so that it doesn't resonate in the same way in the present. So I guess that is in a way time traveling and changing the past as well. Unless you have another angle on that. I don't know. I mean, I know I know a lot of it really bothers me, uh, but I know a lot of really intelligent people that seem to put stock in this Mandela effect. You know, right. are you, are you uh, where do you, where do you stand I don't on that? that. I, I, I haven't subscribed to it. Uh, I've, I've heard it. It's entertaining. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't put too much stock in it. I really don't put too much stock in most beliefs like I hold an open mind and I like I believe that uh, I believe in nothing but I believe that anything is possible you know what I mean um, like I think it's all it's all entertaining and it's all stories and it can all be used in some way but I don't put too much stock into that particular theory but then I, have, I also haven't really excavated it uh, to its fullest probably. it just seems to me like I'm totally fine with there being multiple pasts and multiple futures but it seems like every present would have to be consistent unto itself and that you wouldn't have half the people remembering it one way and the other half remembering it the other way. And they're both objectively true. You know, like it becomes unstudiable if there's not right. like well, some way to verify and consent. There's this sense of, of, of a drift. It's almost like that game of telephone, right? Like one person says something, passes it to the next one. And by the time it goes around the circle, it's become something completely different. Like, Perhaps these uh, these like Mandela effect, these kinds of ideas are just like they're just socially distorted to the point that they've drifted so far that people uh, hold, put more stock into um, the reverberations of the thing rather than the actual thing, which comes back again to that model of consciousness of like uh, metaphors for metaphors, right? Like now we're basing metaphors on other metaphors rather than on what the original metaphor is based on. So it's like becomes just like these lay kind of like the earth, you know, just like layers upon layers upon layers. And somewhere in there are the fossils of, of, uh, whatever truth is. I don't even know what that is, but you know. you know, the oldest rocks are already metamorphosed. Like we can't really go older than 4 billion years. Like we know the earth's older, but any kind of physical anatomical fossils are just like, they've just been vulcanized and squished and like we don't get that anymore like yeah. i think that there really is like when i was talking with jf martell on the show i think we brought this up he definitely brought it up in some of his later writing that again kind of what you were getting at earlier that there's the concept and then there's the percept and then there's the perception and then there's like this thing that's even deeper than the perception and we can't actually go back to the beginning of it so we can't actually ever really prove that there is a beginning well it's like all the layers of the onion are ultimately like layers around nothing right it's like uh, when i when i think of my psychedelic visions for instance when i come back from them sometimes i'll you know there's like the face-filled vision that first overpowers you and then afterwards you try to think about it and kind of like conceptualize it and the more i start picking it apart it's like oh hey well this reminds me of that or this reminds me of this thing from this movie or that sort of thing and by the end of it you just got like hands full of associations but it's like still no closer to what 
you just actually experience. Actually, you get further away from it, but you have more of like the shed snakeskin of the experience, which is what we kind of carry through time with us. I think that's the rhizome, right? In like Deleuze and Guattari. I'm not, I'm not an expert here, but like this notion that like, you know, in a way it's like, if you don't have a, a net of ideas, then there's no idea because that it requires right. the tension from every side of it. It requires right. this associative webbing in order for any of it to actually exactly. cohere into if it's, a thing. If it's just me standing on top of Stonehenge, it would have no significance. <laughs> <laughs> All the other ideas kind of you know, it's just, it would just be a flicker in the sky rather than a constellation, which is, again, like a, a mode of storytelling. Yeah. Well, so... This has been super fun. We should probably wrap it up here soon, but I want to give yeah. you I want to give you an opportunity to play with the rhetorical framing of this show as like a time capsule or a way of following your lead, sort of necromantically communicating with the unborn. If you're the, you know, somebody's <laughs> ancestor communicating from beyond, and you're communicating through, you know, some sort of occult radio broadcast, or you're attempting to like tune into the station of that thing that remains yet unexcavated, <laughs> but is right. calling in its Lovecrafty and tentacled way out to us from inside of the mountain. We've been blowing bubbles in this kind of fractal froth of ideas, right? So there's like a lot that we can uh, we can pick out of. But there's this one idea that's uh, kind of been playing on my mind that I'll share with you, which kind of encapsulates some of the ideas, which is this, it's sort of like a virtual reality notion for the future. Because first we, we had Kindle, right? Uh -huh. Which is the electronic book reading platform, which I think is a book burning reference, personally, Kindle. Oh, right? which, dude, don't yeah. even get me started on the on Amazon replacing the Amazon. Right, that too. That's the other one, the other side of that. But yeah, the idea that in the future books uh, will be will be kept in this sort of place, this virtual space that I call the metaphorist, which uh, this is a place where bookworms are synonymous to tree huggers. So imagine a bunch of um, records stacked high until you have these trees, right? And the grooves of the records of the tree rings. And uh, what people do, what writers do is they go and they plant these ideas in there and they come to cultivate them till you have like these stacked records of these like pillars that are trees. And then other people can go into the space and they can come and they can hug these trees in order to extract these stories and this information. So a bookworm and a tree hugger is essentially the same thing in the metaphorist. I think that encapsulates some of the things we've talked about. Uh, That's <laughs> very reminiscent of the spoiler alert final a scene of interstellar where he's inside the black hole yes. and it's he's like in the library of all yeah. moments from behind it somehow and that's the a Damon story isn't it that felt like the truest thing i've ever seen whatever you can say about the rest of that movie i was like they nailed it exactly and that's what i think the the purpose of that movie was is to take a really high concept idea and um you know, present that through this framework of this film, which might be lacking dimensions in other ways, but it succeeded in bringing that very high and unarticulated before then idea across very vividly. So that's, yeah, definitely. You get, that's the metaphorist uh, in that realm. Which is a, a task that I think you and I have utterly failed to do in this kind of talk, but who cares? This was super fun, man. Uh, I would love to have you back on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Last man. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Cheers. 
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support this show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.